This is the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, episode number eight. Clinical policies and how much blood should I transfuse? Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey, secondary survey, analgesia, fluids, shock, trauma. We've got it covered. And now, here's your host, never afraid to bring the jibber-jabber, it's Shailen Jassani. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast with me, Shailen Jassani. Thanks for taking the time to join me once again. As always, before I get into today's episode, I want to say thank you to the people who have taken the time to rate and or review the podcast in iTunes. Thanks to Linka, who is a registered vet nurse in the UK, and she writes, Great CPD, relevant, current, and easily accessible. Fantastic to have access to these for free. And thanks again to Mel the Vet for another review. She writes, Well-presented discussion, an enjoyable experience to listen to, has the added advantage that it can be downloaded and then listened to later, even if there is no Wi-Fi available at the time of listening. So thanks very much, ladies, for those reviews, and I really appreciate your feedback. So let's get on with today's podcast. Today's episode is kind of split into two parts, but they are basically related around an evidence-based medicine type of theme. In the first part, I want to make some comments about a situation in human medicine that I think is worth us discussing. The specific scenario in question is something that I came across this week, and although the subject matter relates to humans... I think the concept and the issues that it illustrates are equally relevant to veterinary medicine. As you know, when we are thinking about evidence-based medicine, the basic premise is that we make clinical decisions about individual patients on the basis of the best available evidence, the experience and reasoning of the clinician, and patient-related factors which in veterinary medicine include those relating to the pet's carers. With respect to the best available evidence, what we find is that various colleges, societies and other bodies may assess the evidence that is available and then put out clinical policies or clinical guidelines that clinicians can either choose or sometimes are actually obliged to follow. On the face of it, that seems like a good idea. If a group of experts have assessed the available evidence and come up with a policy or guidelines on that basis, then that seems quite handy, right? It kind of makes your life a little bit easier. And that is true, but there are some potential issues. So the first one is that you have to have confidence in the panel of experts that actually came up with the recommendation. You have to have confidence that they looked for all the available evidence thoroughly, that they assessed and graded the evidence impartially and properly, and that the policy or guidelines that they came up with 
followed logically from their assessment of the evidence and basically that there was lots of transparency throughout the whole procedure. Clinical policies and guidelines can very quickly become adopted as best practices and people can actually become quite dogmatic about them. Those of you that know me well and especially those who have worked with me you will know that I'm not really a fan of dogma when the evidence base for so much of what we do clinically is relatively so poor, I think that it is much more rational to acknowledge and embrace uncertainty and to be honest about the things that we do and do not know. I always say that to me there is bad practice and good or rational practice. The lack of certainty is not a justification for bad practice though, For example, when I have been discussing the management of X or Y problem with someone, um, that's someone, you know, being someone who does things in a way that is clearly more risky or harmful than my recommended approach. One of the responses I get is, well, that's your opinion and this is mine. Now, frankly, if doing things your way results in greater patient morbidity and indeed even higher mortality, then I really think that you should be reassessing what you do. But within the sphere of good or rational practice, then I think that there is definitely no harm in acknowledging that different opinions and approaches could be equally valid, at least until until such time as more robust evidence becomes available in support of one or other approach. The other potential issue with policies or guidelines is when the policy that is accepted as being best practice does not sit well or even contradicts your own personal experiences. So if the policy says that you should do a procedure a certain way or give a certain drug and your personal experiences of this procedure or drug are that the risks or adverse effects are more common than the evidence suggests, then that can be quite a difficult and conflicting situation. Because on the one hand, you don't want to feel like you are harming your patients. And on the other hand, you feel like you should be complying with the policy. Now, of course, if the evidence on which the policy was made is extensive and good quality, then maybe you need to accept that your own personal experiences are just anecdote and bad luck. But this, of course, takes me back to my earlier point, that you need to be able to have confidence in how the policy or guidelines were derived. I hope that I've explained that okay and that it makes sense. And that is basically the background or the context in which I wanted to mention this issue from human medicine that I came across this week. In 2012, the American College of Emergency Physicians released a clinical policy on the use of TPA in humans with stroke. And this is obviously something that is very, very important. But ever since it was published, the policy has been controversial. I am really oversimplifying this here, but basically the policy encouraged the use of TPA. However, many individual clinicians were very uneasy with that and felt, for example, that the risks of people suffering cerebral bleeding due to the TPA had not been adequately considered. Of course, they were in that conflicted position I described earlier, where they felt they had to adhere to the policy 
despite having their reservations. The controversy over the policy is largely centred on the belief among some, but not all clinicians or commentators, that the evidence that was assessed by the panel, that that evidence was actually given a stronger level recommendation than the data actually supported. That there were lots of conflicts of interest, basically members of the panel who stood to gain from TPA being used, and that the data, which was mainly taken from the NINs, the ECAS, and the IST3 studies, that that data was problematic. I'm not going to go into more detail, but after a lot of deliberation and discussion, ASEP has just released a draft 2015 clinical policy in which the recommendations are somewhat toned down and reflect a greater level of uncertainty about TPA use. The other interesting thing is that in the 2012 policy, the disclosure section was 400 words long. In this new draft, it is 11 words long and basically says there were no relevant industry relationships disclosed by the subcommittee members. By necessity, I've provided only a high-level summary, but I found this situation very interesting because I think it is a situation which demonstrates well the points that I was making earlier in this podcast about the way in which clinical policies and guidelines are constructed and about the confidence that we have to have in the evidence when we look at um, applying evidence to our clinical practice. Okay, so I want to move on now and talk about a couple of papers that relate to the area of predictive transfusion formulae. If you look at some books or course notes, for example, you will find formulae that are intended to try and help you answer the question, For this anemic patient to which I want to give a red cell transfusion, how much blood should I give? Does that question sound familiar? I'm sure it must do. Now, if you take a step back and think about it, could it really be that you could work out a volume of blood using a mathematical formula, give it to a living patient with ongoing physiology and pathophysiology, and a predicted change in packed cell volume or hematocrit would occur. There are lots of variables that are going to impact on how the blood that we transfuse to the patient ultimately affects the measured PCV, including, for example, ongoing red cell loss and intravenous fluid therapy that occurs during the transfusion process. I must admit that I've personally never used any of these formulae, And I've always decided on an empirical volume that sits somewhere in the 10 to 20 mils per kilo range. And I factor in things like how severely anemic my patient is, how my planned volume translates to actually unit size, and other things such as what the pet's carers can afford. I must also admit that I have never taken the time to try and find out where these formulae originally came from and how they were derived. And I've no doubt that most of you listening to this are in the same camp. But let's turn to the most important question, which is how do these formulae perform in clinical patients, which after all is what we are most concerned about. I'm going to mention a couple of papers from the literature on this, 
But I do want to say that I've not spent a long time doing an extensive literature search. And if anyone is aware of any other papers that you feel further contribute to this discussion, do please feel free to let me know. And the other thing is that I'm not going to do a deep dive critique of the methodology of these papers. I just want to convey to you their reported key findings. So the first paper is called Accuracy of Formulas Used to Predict Post-Transfusion Packed Cell Volume Rise in Anemic Dogs. And the authors are Short, Deal, Shezadri and Serrano, and it was published in the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care in August 2012. And I will, of course, include the full reference in the show notes for this episode. I should also say that if anyone would like a copy of the paper, then do feel free to get in touch. I don't think that I'm breaking any rules by giving a small number of individuals a copy of the paper for educational purposes. The objective of this prospective observational study was to evaluate the accuracy of four formulae, three that were widely used in veterinary medicine and one less common formula used in neonatal human medicine. So they were trying to evaluate the accuracy of these formulae to transfuse anemic dogs in an emergency and speciality small animal hospital. And they did this by comparing the calculated expected rise in PCV to the actual rise in PCV that occurred following packed red blood cell transfusion. The packed red cells were given in CPDA1 additive and their hypothesis was that these formulae would not accurately predict the post-transfusion PCV rise in anemic dogs. The four formulae that were used were Formula 1, 1 mil times desired rise in PCV times body weight in kilograms, Formula 2, 2 mils times desired rise in PCV times body weight in kilograms, Formula 3, body weight in kilograms times blood volume taken as 90 mils times the desired PCV minus the recipient PCV over the donor PCV. And formula 4, 1.5 times the desired rise in PCV times body weight in kilograms. So they did some maths to clarify what the expected rise in PCV was. 31 anemic dogs were recruited into the study and in total 37 transfusions with complete data were recorded. So some dogs had more than one transfusion and each episode was included, which you could argue starts to muddy the waters a little bit. Anyway, 18 transfusions, so 49% were administered to or due to red blood cell destruction. So for example, immune-mediated hemolytic anemia. And 19 transfusions, so 51%, were administered due to internal or external blood loss, for example, due to trauma, surgical hemorrhage, gastrointestinal bleeding, anticoagulant redondocyte toxicity, and hemoabdomen due to neoplasia. No patients in this study were transfused for non-regenerative anemia as the sole diagnosis, so basically all their cases were acute anemias. 
The conclusions from the author that the authors present were that Formula Three, which, as a reminder, was body weight in kilograms times blood volume of ninety mils times the desired PCV minus the recipient PCV over the donor PCV. So that formula and Formula Four, which was one point five times the desired rise in PCV times body weight in kilogram. That those two formulae perform the best. Now, formula three obviously accounts for the PCV of the donor blood, which may have some additional merit, and they mention some other things that I'm not going to get into in this podcast. The authors go on to recognise some of the limitations of their study, and these include the fact that the patient number per group, with respect to red cell destruction versus loss, is small. Further studies with greater number of patients may help to differentiate if the classification of anemia, so destruction versus loss versus decreased production, has a significant impact on the post-transfusion PCV. They were unable to determine whether concomitant intravenous fluid therapy was administered during each transfusion, and this, of course, may have influenced the results, particularly. The use of、uh, parental fluids can result in hemodilution and therefore lowering of the PCV. Although this was a prospective study, I guess the reason they weren't able to tell whether the patients had received fluid therapy or not was that the information they were using was nevertheless derived from the medical records. Another limitation that they mention is that the volume of commercially obtained packed red blood cells was not confirmed prior to administration. In some cases, a fixed volume, or I should say, a fixed volume at least according to the infusion device, which we know can have some inherent inaccuracies. Anyway, in some cases, a fixed volume was given, but in cases in which a full unit was administered. The amount given may have varied slightly and would have affected the resulting post-transfusion PCV from the formally predicted PCV. So basically, we have a sense of how much we expect there to be in a full unit or a half unit that is commercially provided, but this wasn't specifically measured, and so we can't be absolutely sure. Another discussion point is that the timing of the post-transfusion PCV was standardised within one hour of completing the transfusion. Now there are potential pros and cons of doing this that I'm not going to get into here. But when we think about a post-transfusion PCV, obviously the time in which that sample is taken after the transfusion ends can affect the actual reading we get. Factors such as equilibration. Ongoing red cell loss, etc., can affect that actual PCV that we get. Basically, the authors' conclusions are that the findings of this study support the application of Formula Three and Four for packed red blood cells transfusions for dogs with acute anemia due to red cell destruction or loss. However, further studies will be needed to determine their application to other populations and to cats. As well as to develop more accurate formulae. The second paper I want to mention is entitled "Assessment of Five Formulae to Predict Post-Transfusion Pack Cell Volume in Cats," and the authors for this paper are Reed 
Espadas Leila et al. This is from the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery, published in August 2014. As before, I will include the reference in the show notes, and if anyone wants a copy of the paper, then let me know. So the authors make the point that at least in the UK where these authors are based, we don't store feline blood products. Typically, the volume of blood administered depends on the amount that is obtained from the donor. But they also say that the predictive formulae that have been reported elsewhere are typically based on giving canine-packed red blood cells, whereas in the UK anyway, we usually administer whole blood to cats. It is possible to separate out feline red cells if we really want to, but in the UK we typically don't have this available or we typically don't go through the um, work that's in, in related or involved in actually separating them out within our own clinic, although you can actually do that. Now, even if we're talking about canine whole blood, another point that the authors make is that the PCV of the donor blood would typically be higher than that of a feline donor. So again, maybe the formulae are less applicable. So the aim of this retrospective study was to identify the most appropriate formula to use for estimating the PCV after transfusion of whole blood, with the hypotheses that current formulae used to predict the increase in PCV after blood transfusion tend to overestimate the expected value. And the second hypothesis was that a formula incorporating the donor's VCV could be more accurate than one that does not. This study was performed across two hospitals, but the procedures for blood collection and transfusion were very similar across the two institutions. In both cases, blood had been collected into 10 mil syringes containing CPDA anticoagulant at a ratio of 1 to 9 with the blood. The cats in this study were classified into two groups. So group 1 comprised cats with non-regenerative anemia that were unlikely to have acute changes in PCV. So unlike the dog paper that had none of these cases, this feline paper did include some cats with non-regenerative anemia. And group 2 had cats that had ongoing blood loss from either hemolysis or hemorrhage, and this might, of course, lead to a suboptimal response to transfusion. In this study, the post-transfusion PCV had to be measured within 12 hours. Remember, in the dog paper, I mentioned that they standardized this to be within one hour. And the other difference was that in this cat paper, if a cat had more than one transfusion, only the first episode was included in the study, which I think makes more sense. Now, I'm not actually going to go through each of the five formulae that they used in this paper here, because even reading out the canine ones, I'm sure it's difficult in this kind of format to actually register the specifics of those formulae. But what I am going to do is to include the formulae in the transcript for this episode, which you can get by visiting veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash eight and you will see that there's a button there and you click on the button, follow the instructions and you can get the transcript. 
The first three formulae that they used in this feline paper were derived from formulae published in the veterinary literature, whereas the fourth and fifth formulae were derived from formulae published in human paediatric literature. 17 cats had non-regenerative anemia and 23 cats had ongoing blood loss due to immune-mediated hemolytic anemia, sepsis, DIC or hemorrhage. PCV was measured within one hour of transfusion in all of the cases except five, and in these that was measured within 12 hours. So these authors conclude that the hypothesis that commonly used veterinary formulae overestimate the PCV actually obtained after transfusion was not supported. So the formulae did not overestimate the PCV. They include other discussion as well, um, but essentially their take-home message was that none of the formulae that they tested was actually optimal. And obviously they go on to mention some of the limitations, including the lack of standardization of post-transfusion sampling time, not accounting for fluid therapy, and the usual chestnut that we always have, which is small sample size. So the author's right, and I'm reading this from the paper. Ideally, a prospective study should be performed in order that methodology and timing of PCV measurement is standardized and fluid therapy taken into account in inclusion criteria, which could allow a more accurate formula to be identified for predicting post-transfusion PCV. No single formula was identified as being highly accurate at predicting the post-transfusion PCV in anemic cats. Overall, Formula 1 performed best with low bias across groups, in addition to being easy to use. And Formula 1 in this paper was that the volume to be transfused is equal to 2 times the desired increase in PCV times body weight in kilograms. But the authors point out that even with this formula, although it performed the best and was easy to use, the actual PCV that was obtained after the transfusion could be up to 8% more or less than expected. Okay, so that's a lot of information about a couple of papers, which as I say, I will include the references in the show notes and make this detail available to you in the transcripts. But what does all of this mean for our actual clinical practice? Well, of course, I'm very interested to hear your interpretations. I guess in summary, I would say that based on these two papers, in addition to my own personal thought processes and experiences of doing this work, I don't think that it's wrong to use a predictive formula if that is what you are used to and feel most comfortable doing. As I say, personally, I haven't and I don't. But ultimately, the most important thing is the patient and what effect the the transfusion actually has on the patient. I'm not going to get into a discussion here about the indications for transfusion, but we know that the actual PCV itself is only one of the factors that we need to consider. And likewise, whether or not a transfusion has been effective, we make that decision not just based on how much the PCV increases, but also by the changes in the patient's clinical status their cardiorespiratory findings, and so on. If you do use a formula, 
then basically just be prepared for the fact that the post-transfusion PCV may be quite different to what the formula predicted and essentially just be at peace with that outcome. Remember also that how long you wait to sample the patient after the transfusion has ended, that that can have some relevance on the PCV that you actually measure. And something else that I really want to stress is that remember that we should be using blood products as a valuable resource to be used wisely and judiciously. Without getting into an ethical debate, we have basically obtained these products from a donor animal essentially without their consent, and we are taking blood from them, not for their benefit. So to my mind, we are obliged to make best use of the product. These products can also be relatively expensive, and again, we're obliged to make best use of the pet's carer's resources. And remember that while under-transfusion is clearly not great, over-transfusion can also be harmful. I'm going to stop there. So that brings me to the end of today's episode. The episode was split into two parts, but basically there was an evidence-based medicine theme that relates um, throughout the podcast episode. Remember that if you would like a copy of either of the papers that I referred to, get in touch with me and I'm sure it's okay for me to email a few individuals with a copy. You can use the contact form on the Veterinary ECC Smalltalk website which is at veteccsmalltalk.com. If you would like a transcript of today's episode, including those formulae that were looked at in the different papers, then visit the website at veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash eight. Click on the appropriate button and follow the instructions. The last thing I want to say is that I also want to make available to you a for free um, a copy of some notes on anemia. So there's about 15 pages of notes on anemia there and it basically covers the types of anemia uh, approach to the patient and so on. If you would like a free copy of these 15 pages of notes on anemia then again visit the website at veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash eight. Click on the appropriate button and follow the instructions. Now, this time I have been a little bit cheeky and I will make these notes available to you for free, but I'm only going to make them available to people who have actually taken the time to rate and review the podcast in iTunes. So if you want these notes, click on the button, follow the instructions, rate or review the podcast and you'll get the notes for free. What do they refer to that as? I think it's... um, a quid pro quo, right? So I do something for you, you do something for me. Okay, the next episode of this podcast will be in two weeks' time. Thanks again for listening, and until next time then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Until next time, keep up the small talk and the jibber-jabber.